Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Today's program is a special Smart Talk in several ways. First of all, and most importantly, the focus of today's show is the arts. But our location is a little different, too. We're broadcasting live from WITF's Public Media Center atrium in front of a live audience. In our first segment today, we are honored to have internationally renowned artist Philip Perlstein on the program. Mr. Perlstein is visiting Harrisburg to launch Philip Perlstein's 75 Years of Painting at Susquehanna Art Museum. The exhibit includes the artist's earliest works from the 1940s through the development of the modern figure paintings for which he is internationally acclaimed. Now, the exhibit runs from February 11th through May 22nd. Uh, among Perlstein's honors are a National Endowment for the Arts grant, a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship, and election to the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. In 2008, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award, National Academy New York, and the Scholastic Distinguished Alumni Achievement Award. His works are found in the collections of over 70 museums in the United States, including the Art Institute of Chicago, the Corcoran Gallery of Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the Susquehanna Art Museum. Philip Perlstein, thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you. I mentioned that, uh, I mentioned to you that's the longest introduction I've ever done on this show. So, <laughs> and that kind of leads into uh, the exhibit at the, the Susquehanna Art Museum, Philip Perlstein's 75 Years of Painting. I kind of joked with you before the program asking, did you ever think that uh, you would be doing an exhibit entitled 75 Years of Painting? No, but that's actually a couple years short. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I wanted to say that though I have paintings in many museums, all museums have large storerooms. <laughs> <laughs> and my paintings seem to end up in the storerooms. I don't think so. <laughs> well, very often. <laughs> how does one choose, now I know that you probably were not alone in doing this, but how does one choose works from 75 years? I, have no, I haven't the vaguest idea. Um, I'm always surprised that when a painting does sell, uh, I developed as an artist during the 1950s, uh, although, I mean, as a professional exhibiting artist in New York City and getting attention uh, and controversy. But uh, and it didn't matter what style I worked in, my work always seemed to upset people. Uh, it's kind of built in. It doesn't matter whether I was doing abstraction or uh, landscape paintings. I've done everything. You know, a choice of style is arbitrary. You're not born into the style. Uh, you have the whole history of art to choose from. And there is a kind of basic vocabulary that you learn. Uh, it's not about self-expression. It's more like... Um, what an editor does when you write something. There are a set of rules that you can find, you invent for yourself, or you find from the past, you recombine them. And that's more or less, uh, I don't know where I picked that idea up, but I've, 
it sort of controlled my life. Uh, should I go on? Yeah, sure. No. One of the good <laughs> things about this format is we don't cut you off soundbite length. You can okay. go right ahead. They want to hear from you. <laughs> well, during the 1930s, when I really began uh, fooling around with art uh, at an early age, and then primarily in high school, uh, I graduated high school in 1942, uh, there was, a, it was not so different politically, the world was, than it is now with Trump. Um, it was America first. It was the beginning of preparations for World War II. And I lived, I grew up in Pittsburgh and the sky was like this when I was very young. You know, it was blue. It gradually got darker and darker and darker and then by 1940 or 41, you could hardly see the blue anymore. Uh, those steel mills were really blasting away. Yeah, it should mention that uh, you're from Pittsburgh. I'm from Pittsburgh. Right. But Pittsburgh, you know, went through this Great Depression. And uh, that's when I developed, in the middle of this Great Depression, in the middle of a a large extended family that had no interest, no sympathy for anything approaching the arts. It was something that was totally out of daily experience. And uh, I had a bunch of uncles, a uh, few aunts, <laughs> and no sympathy. None. <laughs> so there, there wasn't a lot of support there. There for was no support. Young Philip Perlstein, the artist. Yeah, no support. <laughs> Uh, they thought I was a little queer kid. <laughs> I was always making pictures, and that's something you weren't supposed to be doing. And then, uh, anyway, when I became aware that through, primarily through my high school art teacher, uh, who gathered to a, a group of kids around who were interested, who seemed to be interested in the arts and had talent. And, uh, he was terrific. He was from Harrisburg. Really? His name was Joseph Fitzpatrick, or else he was educated in Harrisburg, uh -huh. got his teaching license. But he gathered together a large group of people, term after term, who met in his uh, classroom, and art became the only thing we were all excited about. I don't understand how he did it. But a number of people from those groups, you know, each term it was sort of a different group, went on to have real careers oh, later on. Let me interrupt for just one moment and tell our audience, we have a, a, a very, uh, a nice size audience today, and what I like about these live shows mm -hmm. like this is it brings energy to it. But I want to encourage members of our audience that if you have a question for Philip Perlstein, uh, just raise your hand. And it kind of takes the place of phone calls today, but uh, this is a great opportunity if you'd like to ask uh, Mr. Perlstein a question. Now, you said that your interest in art developed in high school, but you did take it further. Uh, being from Pittsburgh, uh, many people, when they think of art and they think of Pittsburgh, besides yourself, they also think of Andy Warhol. And you and Andy Warhol became friends. 
to the point where both of you, and you also met your wife in Pittsburgh, but to the point where you moved to New York with Andy Warhol. Yeah, well, there was a World War There two was one in between. In yeah. between. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you were drafted, right? Yeah, I was drafted as I graduated, the age of 18. We all were, all the, all the uh, male students. But I had won a uh, scholarship for my first year at, it was called Carnegie mm -hmm. Tech, now Carnegie Mellon. So I got a deferment for the, till the end of the next school year. So just before my 19th birthday, I went in uh, to the Army and I was put into the infantry. And from the dark brown skies in Pittsburgh, suddenly we had this brilliant sunshine all day long in Alabama, and I thought I'd go crazy. <laughs> I'd lose my eyesight from the sun. <clears throat> it was four months of nightmare. Uh, we, we were trained in World War I uh, trench warfare. In other words, hand-to-hand -hand combat. And from being this pudgy kid, uh, through all this intense physical exercise, I emerged at the end like a mini Superman. It was amazing. That's when I became interested in the human figure, uh, what it can do. So It's amazing. What, what, so training in the Army got you interested in the human figure? Yeah, the mechanics of it, how it moves. I mean, that's what the, it was all about, movement. And, uh, well, we also learned to kill the guy opposite yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, there is that. <laughs> yeah. But it was an amazing physical transformation of, that happened to me, and I saw it happening to everybody around me. Uh, we all went in, slumped over, you know, and emerged, you know, in this parade-ready other form. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, but a total physical transformation. <clears throat> well, through crazy circumstances, I ended up taking uh, basic infantry training three, a total of three times. Each time it was somewhat different and in different locations. Uh, I was in the lower, the lowest possible echelon <laughs> of the United States Army. The units I traveled in were called uh, infantry casualty replacement units, <laughs> which got shortened to Repel Depel. <laughs> and I've spent two years, one year in the United States, then one year in Italy, always combat ready. Then the war suddenly, the fighting suddenly ended, <clears throat> and I was in Italy, and I got transferred, because I'd never actually got into combat, I was, uh, I had no points. I hadn't earned my way out. Didn't they know you were Superman? No. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I got thrown into a, an engineering company uh, as a sign painter. And, uh, but that's 
third year was spent mostly with German prisoners of war. We did all the. So you were you were painting signs. I was in charge of a sign shop. At first, I painted the signs myself, and then after a while, we were transferred to a bigger unit that was rebuilding what was called the highway. Yeah. It was a three-lane road, you know, Tarra, between the cities of Rome and uh, Florence. The German prisoners of war were doing all the work, and we were supervising. Now, well, see, I was about to say, I thought that those would be the best damn paintings, painted signs I've ever seen. Uh, you no, know, I did a few like that. They, they probably <laughs> wondered why there would be nude paintings on those signs. Germany, but hey, let's go to the 1940s uh, and early 50s, uh, you know, kind of moving through the decades here, but abstract expressionist landscapes. Now, I know I'm skipping oh. some, some time there, but that's what you were known for in the late 40s, early 50s. How did well, you, what attracted you to landscapes? Well, first of all, when I got out of the Army, I went back to college, and that's mm -hmm. where I met Andy Warhol in sophomore oh, okay. year. All right. So there were a number of years between us. <clears throat> the first day of class, which was made up mostly of, you know, GIs like myself, uh, most, most of us were between the ages of 25 and 45. And Andy and another fellow were the only ones who were the proper age uh, to be sophomore in college. Although his mother had lied about his age and he was actually younger. No. Uh, she wanted to get him into kindergarten. So she... she uh, <laughs> shaved about 18 months off his age. <clears throat> anyway, he came up to me and said, how does it feel to be famous? Because I'd been written up in Life magazine by, uh, in high school as, as an award winner of the National Scholastic High School Contest. And paintings were reproduced in, the, uh, in Life magazine when I was in high school. And that shut my uncles up. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I bet they supported you then, right? They didn't support me, but they treated me differently. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's when I learned that success is the best revenge. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> Andy and I became, well, his first question, as I said, was, you know, how does it feel to be famous? And I said, well, you know, it only lasted 15 days or something like that. When that issue was out. Well, referring back to that, then, then the war came, you know, it all yeah, ended. Yeah. <clears throat> then, uh, anyway, the, we uh, uh, moved to New York after graduation, after three years. And he was extraordinarily talented. And there was another uh, friend of ours who, who left earlier, uh, a year or two earlier, and had gone to Pratt Institute, transferred to Pratt Institute, because he was from Brooklyn, and he thought he should be spending more time with his family. <clears throat> but he was so smart that he was hired by his uh, design teacher who was then the head of the, the uh, art editor of 
Fortune magazine, which was really big back then. <clears throat> and he had a list of all the secretaries of all the art directors in the city. I mean, our friend did, as the personal assistant to this other guy. And he, he gave us that list of telephone numbers and said to use his name because he was on a telephone friend of all these secretaries. <clears throat> so we used that. And by the end of the first week, Andy's portfolio was very charming. He had a big assignment, and it never let up from that moment on. I couldn't get work. They looked at my portfolio and it looked, struck them as very odd, strange. And I had, as part of my portfolio, I had decided to, uh, in the Army I had done some charts on weapons, how to take it apart and so forth, uh, to, as part of the training of the soldiers that were used out, in the, these charts were used out in the field. And I thought there was a future for that in education. Uh, so I decided to diagram parts of the United States Constitution. And <clears throat> based on somebody's book. And uh, the art editors would look at my portfolio and see the word Constitution. And it was already the beginning of the McCarthy era. They said, what are you, a communist? No. They didn't even look at it. They shut the portfolio and opened the door. <laughs> I was left up in the air while Andy had all this work. So I began painting again. Uh, <clears throat> but I finally did get a job and assist, as an assistant to a graphic designer. We have a question here from a member sure. of our audience. Good morning. Hello, hello. It was a pleasure to hear you speak about all your paintings last night at the museum, oh. Carlstein. So thank you for being in town. I have a question about your gallery representation over the years. I imagine you began in New York, but were you affiliated with one gallery for a long time <clears throat> or several? No, in the 1950s, there, was, there were about four galleries in New York City, and they were showing the work of mostly older European artists. The Surrealists were big at that moment. And, uh, <clears throat> but there was a whole lively group downtown in lower Manhattan. They were centered in an area roughly between, uh, I don't know why they were all down there, <clears throat> between Avenue A, Avenue B, uh, I'm trying to remember the avenues. <laughs> First, Second Avenue, below 14th Street, above Halston Street. It was amazing. You'd look out, of, my wife and I moved into that neighborhood. Uh, well, I should say that when I started working for this graphic designer, he caught me one afternoon looking through his collection of books, Van Gogh or something. And I was looking at, he said, you have time left on the GI Bill to go back to college. Why don't you go study art history? And you can keep working for me part time. <clears throat> so unfortunately, I got accepted. Uh, 
NYU Institute of Fine Arts, where I was way over my head. I mean, they were way over my head. It was the best uh, history of art department in the United States, and everybody had a scholarly background. I, I didn't. I had, a, I had good grades for my studio courses, but I didn't know how to read English properly. I didn't know how to use a library. I didn't know what an index was. I certainly couldn't read French or uh, Spanish or German as a second language. I couldn't even read English, you know. And suddenly I'm confronted with all that. And within six months I made it, made it up because my work in graphic design taught me how to organize everything. You're and that's what I did. I, I charted. I made charts of all the courses. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. As I said very early in the program, it is an important and significant day here at WITF and on Smart Talk. Uh, we're just going to pause for a moment in our discussion with uh, Philip Perlstein and talking about the arts. Marie Cusick, who is an artist herself when it comes to Pennsylvania's energy economy, is here to talk okay, sure. about that. <laughs> That's probably the first time you've been described that way, right? Uh, I think so. Okay. Yeah, well, I don't know. I told you it was an important day, Marie. <laughs> it but is. our Roses campaign, our annual Roses campaign, one of uh, the campaigns that we look forward to the most here at WITF, and I think that our audience does as well. Well, I have to say this is my favorite pledge campaign because you get a, it's a win-win. You get to support your favorite public radio station, WITF, and you get to send roses to somebody you love in your life, uh, whether that's a significant other, a friend, a family member. Um, Valentine's Day is on Tuesday, believe it or not. Uh, we're already into mid-February. Uh, so this is a great campaign because you, with a $100 contribution to WITF right now, you can send half a dozen red or rainbow roses to that special person, $125 contribution. You can send a dozen roses and or you could go all out and give us a $250 contribution and you can send two dozen roses. So, Scott, I know you love this time of year. You love romance, right? It's a great time of year. Do I look like a romantic? I think so. I <laughs> do, you send, do you send roses? I do, I oh, do. Good, good. That's the right answer. But I, well, yeah, what was I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> My wife is listening right now. So. All right, she can look forward to some roses. <laughs> but, but again, I think that it is something that we have a good time with on the air. But I do think that uh, WITF listeners, those who uh, appreciate and count on uh, Central Pennsylvania's public broadcasting, public radio, uh, look forward to it as well because it's not just you know supporting WITF, supporting all the programs that uh, WITF produces, but there is that win-win that you talked about, uh, the dozen roses, the rainbow roses. I always like to picture that as you're saying it. Um, and you know, there's, there's just a, a lot a lot that goes into it, uh, a lot of emotions that come out of that. Yeah, and I want to say we've also shortened the campaign dramatically because we know so many people already order online. Hundreds of people have done so already. It's WITF.org slash roses. But you can also call in. Uh, the phone number is 1-800-233-9483. And Scott, yeah, I, I agree. This is kind of always viewed as a romantic holiday. And frankly, you know, if you're not a big romantic, it can get a little annoying. But <laughs> those... Uh, 
uh, those rainbow roses are great for a friend, a family member, maybe somebody you know who's helped you out in the past year, a caregiver, um, somebody, a friend who's you know had a tough year, anybody in your life who you just want to send some love to. We usually send them to every every state. We send them to all 50 states usually by the end of the campaign. I think the last time I checked, we'd hit 32 states. Uh, so. I believe that northern New England has not gotten any roses yet. So if you have somebody what? in frigid Maine right now who you want to send a rose to, this is a great time. Vermont, it's such no. a romantic state. I know. Send some roses. What about Hawaii? I don't think we've hit Hawaii yet. Okay. Hawaii and All Alaska right. come in See, later. As kind of a geography geek, that's always one of my things too, is how many states we cover. So. Right. Well, the map in the studio doesn't have the names of the state on it, so it is uh, kind of a quiz on the air to try to see oh. if you remember oh, which I shape remember is that. Okay. All right. So once again, uh, how uh, someone out there who wants to send roses, how they can do it? Really easy to do. WITF.org slash roses. Again, a hundred dollar contribution to WITF gets you half dozen red or rainbow roses. $125 contribution to WITF gets you a dozen red or rainbow roses for that special person in your life or a $250 contribution is two dozen red roses in a vase. All right. Marie Cusick, thank you very much for joining us this My morning. My pleasure. Our focus on today's program is art, and we are very honored to have internationally renowned artist Philip Perlstein with us this morning. We have a live audience. We're broadcasting from WITF's Public Media Center Atrium, and if any members of our audience have a question, just raise your hand, and uh, we will make sure that uh, we, we get you on the air. Uh, so, Mr. Perlstein, I, I hate to like cover decades in just a, a, a few minutes, but I would be remiss if I didn't talk about uh, figure painting and, and nudes. No, well, you have to answer the question first. All right, we'll go right ahead. <clears throat> Which was about finding galleries. Um, in the 1950s, they say, in, in the early 50s, there were only a handful of galleries that existed in New York City, and they were all concentrating on mostly older artists. Uh, they wouldn't even look at anybody under the age of 40. Quite different than today, where everybody looks for the young artists. And uh, there was a group of artists uh, who were just becoming famous then, very famous, uh, like, like Jackson Pollock, uh, William D. Kooning, Franz Klein, and so forth. They were all <clears throat> living downtown. Well, Pollock had already moved out <clears throat> to Long Island, the end of Long Island. But the, uh, there was this tremendous concentration of fantastically talented people in the, in, the, in the visual arts. And I guess music was flourishing then, poetry and uh, theater all in that little area. And uh, when the GI Bill ran out on me, <laughs> I used my four years up, uh, my wife and I moved into that area and became part of the community. And uh, I heard about a, a group of younger artists who had met in Italy and uh, had discussed the possibility of doing their own gallery. And uh, I knew a couple of the people in that group and became part of that gallery. It was called a co-op, 
and it was uh, we paid the expenses, which was like the members you pay ten dollars a month to belong. And there were ten of us, ten members. <clears throat> But that scene downtown became tremendously important. <clears throat> Sorry. So, okay. Well, I'm going to take a question. I hate to interrupt you, but we have a question from the audience as well. While you get a sip of, of water, go ahead. Hi. You're known for your focus on uh, female nude, and I was fortunate to visit your studio about 10 years ago with Judy Glantzman and a group of students. And I don't know what I was expecting coming into your studio, maybe a repository or a shrine to the female form. <laughs> but I was struck by your collection of African and um, tribal art, and I think I even remember some cycladic types, you know, art objects that were really museum quality stuff. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious um, how that started and how you tie that in with your, what I assume to be your obsession, uh, the female form. Well, <clears throat> I don't know how it started either. <laughs> uh, but in New York, there are great flea markets. And I, uh, but I actually started, I got a Fulbright Fellowship. I keep mentioning these government things, uh, public schools, the GI Bill, uh, Fulbright grant to Italy is about, 18 years after the war, I got 58. And uh, I always felt like a, I belonged to the government. It was amazing. You, you get a, in a certain way, a lot of us, uh, my whole, that whole gener second generation of abstract expressionist painters and the, who came out in the 1950s, um, most of us had gone to school on the GI Bill. They were all Army veterans, men and women. And uh, that's never been publicized. But there was even one artist who became quite well known as an abstractionist. His name was Norman Bloom, who had a congressional, uh, what is it called, one of those Congressional Medal of Honor. Yeah. Uh, never mentioned, nobody talked about the war, but almost everybody had had their experience. And maybe uh, all of abstract expressionism, which was, you know, led to a lot of what's going on now. Uh, kids could do it. <laughs> My kid could paint like Jackson Pollock. But they all, I don't know if Jackson was in the war, but uh, I, I always, thought a lot of it had to do with using art as art therapy, uh, that style, anyway. But uh, just to get back to the question, I had this uh, Fulbright Fellowship. My wife and I lived in Italy for a year, and Rome has this fantastic flea market every Sunday. And I think that's where we got started, seriously. After every rainstorm, especially, there would be a new collection of, a collection of uh, fragments of antiquities for sale at the flea market. You know, something... They would just wash up to the surface. <laughs> <laughs> something that uh, I, I was talking to an acquaintance of yours 
who, who told me that uh, one of the things that you talk about is that everyone is looking for meaning in your art. And I bring that up because you're talking about collecting some of these, these things in Italy and the flea markets and that kind of thing. All right, if I, um, I see uh, two nudes on a red couch, I think it's called the red couch, what's the meaning of that? Well, there's no literal meaning. Yeah, say, uh, so there's, there's, there's no storyline there's, there's, as such. But there are all kinds of other references. Where was the couch made? What style was it? <laughs> uh, are the girls heavy or not heavy? But mostly it's all part of a design. I'm primarily interested in the uh, architecture of the painting. So, and, and that just fit in. I got involved with the figure purely by accident. By when I, I didn't get into teaching art until I was uh, in my 40s. Uh, and I got hired originally because uh, of my background in graphic design. Nobody hired me to teach painting. Uh, but I had a very good graphic design background. And also I had, because of having gone through the Institute of Fine Arts, become a writer. I was uh, publishing articles. That was my introduction to the art world as a, uh, as a writer. Uh, and my first article, strangely enough, was on Francis Picabia. And he became the subject of my MA thesis. And there's now, that was in the early 1950s, now, finally, the Museum of Modern Art has a major show of Francis Picabia currently on. And a, a couple of things I've written along the way are being republished now. There's a big article, in the, and it's on the internet. Uh, the Brooklyn Rail has my take on what the uh, writing that thesis did to my my own development Six, as an artist. 16, 70 years later. Yeah. Huh. All right, so let me talk a little bit about your figure paintings, because... Uh, yeah, well, they were, they were just... I hate to use Picabia as an example, because he was using the figure... He was using machines imitating human people in the Dada period, mm -hmm. between 1910 and 1920. And I thought it was very funny. And I was working at the same time on catalogs for American Standard Sanitary. And all those shapes in the catalogs were showing up in, in the cartoons that Picabia and Duchamp made in the night, between 1910 and 1920. So that's what led me into it. Uh, there was one page I drafted of a toilet lid. It was an American Standard toilets for uh, institutions, meaning mostly prisons. Uh, and there were different designs for these, for toilets and the toilet seats. And I had one page where the toilet seat flips in sequence. Like, <laughs> I thought it was very funny. <laughs> and that led to my study of Duchamp and, and Picabia. Directly from my own personal from experience. Seats, huh? From toilet seats, huh? Well, toilets are part of it. We did a lot of showers. 
Oh, okay. And uh, I, did, I was doing paintings from some of these shapes before I knew Picabia or Duchamp. Uh, my major painting at that time was a shower unit, which looked like a skeleton with a spigot as a, you know, the male organ. And he's attacking a young lady who was a blot on my uh, drafting table. <laughs> but this was, that was uh, late 1949. So you mentioned that very early on when you, you, when you were in the Army in training mm. and where you became interested in the human form. So when you are painting a nude, what are you looking at? I mean, I'm sure you see the human body much differently than most of us. Well, art schools then had models, regular model classes. Mostly they've been eliminated uh, across the United States. Nobody teaches the human form anymore for drawing. I was never interested in anatomy. I don't care what goes underneath the skin. It gives me the willies. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, and what you see with the, well, Art schools are always full of naked models. You can't get away from them. And when I began teaching, uh, in addition to courses in design and so forth, and uh, I gave lectures on the uh, history of art, you know, history of art in 15 lessons. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the guy who wrote that major book, uh, Horace Jansen, that everybody knows, was the advisor on my thesis project. Mm -hmm. And he had me rewrite that thesis three times. I spent three years on it. <laughs> At any rate, he, uh, those are the courses I was hired to teach. And then to fill out my curriculum, they gave me a figure drawing class. Okay. I was not interested, really. I was interested in how it's used in composition um, as part of the organization of the painting on an abstract level. Uh, and I got caught up, and that's what I taught, the figure through art history, through drawing it flat, drawing it with uh, a little light on it, but. Uh, drawing it in perspective, drawing it like Rembrandt, starting with a black, you know, smearing charcoal all over the page and then erasing so it's light. And then into Impressionism and Cubism, and then ripping the whole thing apart uh, as a collage at the end, bringing it up to date. Well, you know, one of the things that I, is I didn't teach the figure as such, just the figure as a design element. And I got caught up with it. It was much more interesting than what I had been doing. And I just stuck with it. It's presented an endless series of uh, problems. One of the things that makes your paintings so unique, your nudes so unique, uh, is the composition of, okay, locations, for mm -hmm. example, of your subjects. Uh, many of your subjects are not centered. In fact, I don't think any of them are. Maybe over the years there are a few, but that we don't see the full body. You're, 
you know, off the, the, the side. We don't see the full body. We, then there's often something else to focus on. I mentioned the red couch, the toy airplanes, uh, that you only, you don't see that, that uh, body in the center. Why is that? Is that something you did on purpose? Obviously it is, but I mean, is it something that uh, you feel it's much more interesting and compelling? Well, another part of my career was at working at Time Incorporated, uh, Life Magazine. That was the last job I had, actually, in that field. By that time, I was, uh, I don't know, 37, 36, 37. Uh, but with its, as a layout artist, the editors would dump all these photographs on the uh, on our table and indicate croppings according to various ways the articles were being developed, what they wanted to emphasize. And you could have one photograph and you, there was an in-house uh, photostat places where they could make the, within a short time, uh, <clears throat> different size formats. Uh, of the photograph. So you'd have to write up the scale you wanted it in uh, so you could cut out a different part of it. But I became fascinated with what they didn't think was interesting in the photograph, which parts were important, which weren't. Um, at this point, I was an abstract painter. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the photographs became abstraction. But it became a game. Uh, I mean, we went through thousands of photographs a week, you know, it's not two or three. So it was a real indoctrination into fragmenting what you saw or what the cameras saw. Uh, years later, I guess subconsciously, I began doing the opposite. When I began drawing in a figure drawing group, uh, organized by one of the other teachers at Pratt Institute where I started teaching. Uh, she had a group come to her place every, her own studio every Sunday night, and we drew for six hours. And that included some very well-known artists at that point who were teaching at Pratt. And uh, so I began drawing somewhere in the middle of the page and just letting things happen just following through, carefully drawing outlines. Where it ended around the page was kind of interesting, sometimes funny. Uh, but it just developed. You know, you, you kind of anticipated one of my next questions. When you have a model there, okay, you, know, you said you started with photographs. Where do you start, or is it just, is it? No, no, I don't, I started with the, I don't work on photographs. Right. I'm just talking about that year. Right, right, okay, but uh, what, when you have a model, do you start the same place all the time, or no. is there well, something start, interesting on the, the human form that the model that you, you look at and say, ah, there's where I want to start? Yeah, where, where there's the most interesting juxtaposition of forms. You know, very often they get into a knotted position or something, cross their legs or something, and that becomes the starting point where it's most complicated. Usually. It's somewhere in this, 
I put it down in the center of the page and just let it grow out from there. Mm -hmm. Where that's working from life, the models in front of me, that's why they're convenient and why I've stuck with them. Uh, some of the same models work with me 15 or 20 years, but they, uh, their personalities have nothing to do with it. It's just using them as, uh, in a sense, abstract forms. Mm. But it, it, it's not just the nude body. I mean, one of the parts of uh, what you do that is so unique, it's the I mentioned the angles, but the shadows, the shapes, the color, the texture. Uh, many people aren't aware that uh, uh, it's not just Caucasian, you know, American white women or white men that, you, that uh, you've painted. Uh, you have uh, models of different ethnic backgrounds, different uh, body shapes and colors. But it seems as though most people focus on uh, you know, the sexuality, for example, of, of your models. Well, that's an American problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we grow up in a, uh, I don't know how to say it, in a shower, shower room culture. <laughs> we all go through the, um, the school system taking showers together. Not men and women together, usually. But... You grow up with nudity all around you. The army, you learn, your boy, you didn't count. Uh, you'd be in line with a whole bunch of other guys without anything on and somebody's examining your genitals. It was called short arm inspection. Uh, it happened once a month, no matter where you were. Uh, you, you lose all sense of self. You have to. So you're saying that's why uh, so many people, when they look at your art, focus on the sexuality of, uh, of your subjects. Right. And they find it embarrassing, usually, or that's what they express, uh, because of the split in our culture, uh, which has to do with, I guess, whatever, whatever religious group you grow up in. But the depictions of religious figures traditionally have been nudes. It's a, it's a very odd situation. And what you can buy at the local newsstand or see on TV, if you know the right channels or on your computer, <laughs> is hair rate, you know, it's unbelievable in terms of what the human body is capable of doing. <laughs> well, Mr. Perlstein... But then the, well, as soon as they see it in the museum, suddenly it's supposed to be something else. We, we are almost out of time. We, we could talk all, all afternoon, I'm sure. Philip okay. Perlstein has... The exhibit is Philip Perlstein, 75 Years of Painting. It's at the Susquehanna Art Museum between now and uh, May. Uh, an honor to have you on the program. It, it is very difficult in less than 55 minutes to capture your entire career. You know that. <laughs> Thank you very much for being with us today. Okay. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. 
Welcome back to Smart Talk. It is a very big day at WITF. I've said that several times, but uh, we have some big news that is not necessarily directly related to art, but uh, it is about the future of WITF and uh, a big announcement that uh, was made yesterday. We're joined by WITF's president and CEO, Kathleen Pavelko. Kathleen, always a pleasure to have you on the program. We always know it's something special when Kathleen is joining us on the program. Well, it's special for two reasons. I'm here on the podium with Philip uh, Pearlstein, and I think that's pretty special, quite frankly. I think so, too. Glad you were here. Uh, we also have some big news uh, that we announced yesterday, and that is that WITF has concluded a channel-sharing agreement. It's part of the bigger FCC spectrum auction process. And as a result of that agreement, it's a business arrangement, basically, uh, WITF will be receiving $25 million that will help to support and expand our news, information, and education services. Wow, you just, $25 million, let that sink in to everyone out there. I mean, for years we've uh, heard about, you know, obviously budgets are tight. So what does this mean for the future of WITF? Well, first of all, uh, it's a wonderful number, but here's what it really means. What it means is about a 9% increase in WITF's annual revenues, just shy of a million dollars a year, because this money is going into our board-designated endowment. So we're being very, very prudent with how we invest and how we use these funds. But what it means is that it provides a stabilizing force for WITF's long-term financial future. Now, there are risks everywhere. Uh, one of the reasons the last few years have been a struggle is because WITF lost all state funding uh, in, back in 2009, uh, have only a tiny amount in the current fiscal year, and right now there's a risk to federal funding. That's why our ability to generate earned revenues through business arrangements and also funds that are contributed by our donors and sponsors are so important. Well, th that's a question that I'm sure there are those out there asking, uh, you know, we are in a roses campaign right now, uh, Kathleen, if WITF is getting this $25 million, do you need my help? Absolutely we do, because as I said, uh, it's, it's a stabilizing amount of money, it's not a transformational amount of money, and the ongoing support of donors, corporate sponsors, and federal and state government allows us to uh, provide our services. We're going to expand our news operation. We're going to uh, add the PBS Kids Channel 24-7 free to every family. We're going to add a media literacy program for kids, much, much needed. All of those require the support of all of those groups, not just the, the uh, spend from our endowment. And we do have uh, some information on our website, WITF.org, and uh, an FAQ where uh, our listeners out there or anyone who's interested can learn more about this. This is great news. It I mean, when news. we had a, an emergency meeting yesterday where Kathleen said, uh, we're about to get $25 million. I mean, every, I think everyone was floored at that point. It was important not to bury the lead. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Pavelko, WITF CEO and President, thank you very much for being with us today. Talk to you on Monday. We hope to talk about uh, funding for the arts on Monday.